Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Today's reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 35. Moses assembled all the congregation of the Israelites and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy Sabbath of solemn rest to the Lord. And Moses said to all the congregation of the Israelites, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Let whoever is of generous heart bring the Lord's offering, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, crimson yarns, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skin, and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and gems for the breastplate. Then all the congregation of the Israelites withdrew from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and brought the Lord's offering to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for its sacred vestments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and pendants, all sorts of gold objects, everyone bringing an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or crimson yarn or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or fine leather brought them. Everyone who could make an offering of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's offering. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. All the skillful women spun their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and crimson yarns and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts moved them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and gems to be set in the breastplate, and spices and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women whose hearts made them willing to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It was 1999. I was riding west to California in my friend's green Tacoma pickup truck, a college graduation gift, belting out a popular song, Wide Open Spaces. I was cramped in the back bench of this two-door cabin, dreaming of all the directions that my life could take. Who doesn't know what I'm talking about? Who's never left home? Who's never struck out? To find a dream and a life all her own. 
A place in the cloud, a foundation of stone. It was an anthem for Generation X white feminists. We would be the ones to have it all and do it flawlessly, or so we thought. I won't litigate the details of how that turned out, either personally or culturally. Perhaps it's enough to note that in this long-delayed reckoning and conscious-raising summer of 2020, the band who performed that song finally changed their name. Like the southern towns who've been purging themselves of Lost Cause memorials, they dropped the Dixie in their title and became just the Chicks. Could this have been an admission that they'd been myopic or mistaken from the start? She needs wide open spaces, room to make a big mistake. She needs new faces. She knows the high stakes. She knows the high stakes. We drove west from Virginia, where we'd spent a week hiking the AT. And with only my camping gear, my Bible, my journal, and a change of clothes, I accompanied my friend moving herself and all her belongings back to California. We saw the di diverse and vast beauty of this country. We camped under the stars in several states. Every morning, I observed what my co Christian college community called quiet time. I woke up before anyone and read the Bible. I journaled about what it said and how much I struggled to be a new creation in Christ. At night, the expanse of the starry sky was awe-inspiring and humbling. I felt the fullness of possibilities that God had placed in the universe. But in the morning, in that cozy cocoon of a sleeping bag and in a tent with a headlamp spotlighting a few Bible verses, I felt centered in the divine wisdom that had been translated into my language, into human language. The God of the cosmos had descended from a place on high and met me intimately where I was. Even when where I was geographically, emotionally, or spiritually was a moving target. The natural landscape was glorious but my quiet time was sacred. Now the past few weeks, we've been exploring the book of Exodus and following the people of Israel as they escape Egypt and as they struggle to survive in the wilderness and approach the promised land. According to the women's Bible commentary, there are no extra biblical sources or historical evidence to corroborate the period of slavery for the Israelites or even a date of the so-called Exodus. There's no way to map whether this search for freedom was a literal journey or a reclamation of identity or a spiritual quest. What we do know is that the Hebrew word for Egypt means a place of constriction. Through their stories, we too must escape the prisons we inhabit. These places of confinement serve as a contrast to the open spaces of the wilderness and the promised abundance of the land of Israel. However, 
that does not mean that liberation is a state of living without limits. Some limits can make the struggle to survive more meaningful, like the limits we place on our self-interest to live in community and the boundaries we set to create sacred space for rest and communion with the divine through the Sabbath, through prayer, and through worship. Mount Sinai can't be located historically or geographically. It's better understood as a utopia, a fictional place where the people of God could locate power outside of the oppressive state, where they could find meaning beyond the tired traditions and confining customs. Sinai is the pinnacle of an invented past. It's like, it's like the setting of a big, hopeful country ballad. It's a place of new beginnings, of repentance, of renewal. So when Moses reaches Mount Sinai and receives the first version of the Ten Commandments, we learn that freedom is more complex than we previously thought. It's not just flight from oppressive circumstances, but a positive movement towards relationship and towards approaching life as a sacred act. Exodus portrays liberation as a process of highs and lows. It is a journey involving death and rebirth, sorrow and joy, destruction and creation, success and failure. On Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses and hands down the commandments. The people who barely listen do manage to complain profusely, though. The tablets with God's own words break. God shows God's self to Moses. But the people are impatient. Forty days of waiting for Moses to return and to tell them what's up is just too long for them. The people melt all their gold to erect a statue of a calf to worship instead. They are desperate for a quick fix, a solid sign that God is on their side. But God gets angry. The people face fear and death. Moses intercedes. Some people die and some people become priests and promise to remind the others of God's glorious presence, even in the times of chaotic absence. Then God's mercy returns. On the mountain, God also describes a tabernacle in great detail, a place of beauty and symmetry where the people can feel grounded and awed enough to sense the glory of God. So the people gather a myriad of fine materials and volunteer their skills to create a place where God can visit them despite the reality that they remain in the wilderness. Now perhaps you could tell from that summary that between God's first attempt to write the Ten Commandments on two tablets and the successful completion of the tabernacle that we read about today, the Israelites make some pretty huge mistakes. And actually, God learns a thing or two about leadership as well. The people of God suffer consequences, but they also feel the benefits of repentance and grace. 
The Israelites have come out of a place of constriction, but they find themselves in need of new limits. They want a special place to remember divine presence in the uncertainty of wilderness. So they learn how to consecrate. God teaches the Israelites how to set aside time, possessions, and space as holy. In this church and even in this culture, we talk a lot about the importance of Sabbath, of finding time to stop working, to stop worrying, to stop everything and rest in the assurance that you are beloved just as you are. Wayne Muller wrote a book called Sabbath in which he says, Sabbath is more than the absence of work. It is the presence of something that arises when we consecrate a period of time to listen to what is more deeply beautiful, nourishing, or true. Keeping the Sabbath takes some work, but it's important. It makes the top 10 of God's commands, and it's reiterated over and over in the chapters between what we read last week and what we read today. In fact, God explaining the Sabbath is as insistent as an app on your watch or your smartphone that constantly nags you to stop and what you're doing and just breathe, meditate, and pray. In today's passage, we see elaborate descriptions of what it takes to construct the tabernacle. We hear God's own directions on how to make sacred objects like the ark that holds the covenant and the table that holds the bread of presence. There is such exquisite detail in these passages. There, there's awe even when you say the names of the material, gold, silver, bronze, fine linen, crimson yarn, acacia wood, and onyx stones. In the immense disorder they are living in as exiles, the people are able to imagine and to build an alternative reality, a bright and balanced creation that they can access in worship. Liturgy is not a mandate by a despot deity. It's not a pledge of allegiance or a political endorsement. Liturgy means the work of the people. What we say and perform in worship is for the sake of the world. It reimagines the created order as one that loves what God loves and pursues justice as God upholds it. Now worship is a way for the people of God to participate in the recreation of the world. One commentary put it this way, the activity of worship may be local, but its concerns and its effects cosmic. Now with the law came a utopian vision of power and the promise that God loves us still. But with the tabernacle comes the dream of order, a sacred purpose for our lives, and the assurance that God dwells with us always. tabernacle fulfills a need that the commandments do not. The tabernacle reveals how we desire to 
not just to know that we are loved and to be taught how to love in return, but we also desire to access the divine and to be co-creators of ourselves and our communities in the divine image. We yearn, we yearn to set limits to the ordinary troubles and responsibilities that can control our lives and make us slaves to our own bodies, our egos, and our ambitions. We long to be like Moses coming down from the mountain after God let Moses see a glimpse of God's backside. We want to bear that shining countenance of someone who has been so close to infinite love that it reflects back on others. I think I think the people of God finally stopped complaining and stopped taking shortcuts in the form of golden calves, but got to work building the tabernacle because they wanted the freedom that Moses received on the mountain. They wanted the lightness of being they saw on his face as he carried the Ten Commandments and a memory of what it felt like to be so close to God. We want that too. Or at least I do, although I have none of the qualities I so admire in others. I want a contagious laugh like Archbishop Desmond Tutu or an atoning voice like Martin Luther King Jr. or the soulful eyes of Mother Teresa. I believe the people of God want to communicate to the world what God has made known to each of us in our own ways with what skills and what qualities we have. Our attempts to shine God's love won't be perfect, but they will be life-changing and hopefully world-changing, even the big mistakes. Because ultimately, it's not about the holiness we cultivate, but the wholeness that God imagines for the people of God and for creation. Our worship is a move towards wholeness. It is repentance, reconciliation, revelation, and renewal. Worship is a way that we mark the sacredness of God's love and we consecrate what surrounds us in that love. For what we learn from the people of God in the wilderness who pooled their possessions and freely offered their skills and artistry is that God's love is both infinite and intimate. It, it is limitless enough to stretch the expanse of a wilderness and a universe, but it is particular enough to meet you where you are, in the desert, in the streets, in your own tent, in the tabernacle that you build with fellow travelers, and in the church sanctuary that you decorate and sustain with other members, even if you can only view it from a distance. God's love is infinite and intimate enough to speak to you whenever you wish to listen, at dawn when you read your own Bible, or on Sundays when you gather with others in prayer and in song, wherever you are, whenever you wish to consecrate the space and time in which you find yourself, God's love meets you there. And the world shifts, 
just a little, or maybe a lot. Thanks be to God. <laughs>